ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Welcome to another week of LNL coming to you from Gadigal Country. Also situated in Gadigal Country is the State Library of New South Wales, which of course has a vast collection of books. But did you know it also has a very fine and significant collection of oil paintings? And we'll display them to you a little later in the program. But first, I see a portrait of Laura Tingle approaching. And Laura, I'd like you to tell me about the ugly picture that's emerging of Mike Pizzullo. Philip, this this is, I've got to say, a really extraordinary story. I can't think of any other senior public servant who's gone so spectacularly down the gurgler, shall we say. Um, Michael Pizzullo uh, has been until today the uh, Secretary of the Department of Home Affairs, but he was a much bigger figure than that. I think we've probably spoken about him over the years, uh, you know, as this um, incredible intellectual uh, force and power figure within sort of the national security establishment, the national security debate. He had very strong views, shall we say, on a wide range of issues. He was very heavily tied up in the border security issues and offshore detention, as well as having a, you know, know, really always demanding to be heard on strategic issues. Um, A few months ago, you might remember that um, there was this absolutely mortifying series of texts leaked between him and Scott Briggs, a figure with long connections with the Liberal Party and sort of a lobbyist when um, Michael Pizzullo was in contact with him. And all the texts were all about, you know, making rather bad reflections on various ministers and uh, public service colleagues, um, but also lobbying on a whole range of issues. And uh, the statement today from the Public Service Commission and after a review of uh, what, what uh, of all these texts and uh, Mr Pizzullo's conduct, uh, says that he used his duty, power, status or authority to seek to gain a benefit or advantage for himself, engaged in gossip and disrespectful critique of ministers and public servants, failed to maintain confidentiality of uh, sensitive government information, failed to act apolitically and failed to disclose a conflict of interest. So it's oh, look, fair game, Laura. Not everybody's perfect. <laughs> I, 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 it is pretty. It is a pretty amazing thing within the sort of uh, confines of the world of Canberra. I've got to say, Philip. So he's been found guilty of breaching the code of conduct on at least fourteen occasions. Yes, pretty amazing stuff. So. Uh, well, the one I th- the one of his activities I thought was the most tantalising was the way he'd been agitating for a right winger to be installed as the Home Affairs Minister for the new department. Yeah, so um, he, uh, I mean, without a doubt, Michael Pizzullo saw himself as a major player in Canberra, and he played it pretty hard. But um, I suppose the thing that if, if I may, Philip, I'm just, I, I, when, when all those texts emerged, the thing that really astonished me was that he was bothering with Scott Briggs, who was the lobbyist. I mean, because he had such amazing connections with everybody in government and politics, including Scott Morrison, who he worked for as Home Affairs Minister. And of course, Scott Morrison rose to be Prime Minister. So it wasn't in. It was. I was always a bit perplexed that he felt he had to go through somebody like Scott Briggs, who whose claim to fame was that he knew that he knew Scott Morrison. How how has Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill responded, uh, Laura? Well, she's she's um, responded. Uh, well, the Prime Minister's technically responded by sacking him, um, and uh, and Claire O'Neill's um, you know had terminate had um, suspended him. Um, when these text messages uh, appeared. But one of, one of the interesting things, I think, Philip, is 
people have wondered whether one of the reasons why the government's looked a bit flat-footed on this whole issue of uh, indefinite detention and the High Court uh, decision on that a couple of weeks ago is because she was without a her permanent secretary, if you like, that um, that she was without the normal person who'd be running the organisation. But given that there've been a lot of controversies within Home Affairs, which people are now looking at anew, uh, given uh, Mr Pizzullo's departure, I don't know whether that's the case or not. Let's follow the money. Uh, Pizzullo was on about a million a year, just a, a whisker under. He was stood down on full pay. Do you reckon they'll pay his contract out? Well, Philip, it's interesting that they they rushed through some measures um, at the end of last week to make sure that essentially they wouldn't have to pay him out. Um, so it, uh, there wasn't just a measure directed at Mike Pizzullo. It was a, it was a change in in the rules governing public servants, so that you don't have to pay them out for their full contract if you sack them in some circumstances. Okay, Claire O'Neill, also in the hot spot, as you were reminding us over the uh, released to detainees and uh, they're urgently trying to sort of push legislation through Parliament. Some say this is being done rather too hastily. Uh, I think a lot of people think it is being done uh, too hastily, Philip, given that uh, this goes to people's fairly fundamental rights, whether you think, you know, whether you think or know that the people involved um, may be some really terrible people, um, they're, when you're talking about really sort of significant deprivations of liberty, um, you'd, you'd want these things to be very well considered, especially since the scope and a range of people who are being uh, pulled into this net keeps widening out. We're up to um, about 141 people now, and it includes people who are just waiting for a determination on their status. Now, um, it's very hard not to see what the government's doing as sort of continually um, up, upping the ante on the nature of the um, responses to this. Today, there was a new round of uh, legal changes which basically criminalised, if that's if that's the way of putting the word, um, a whole range of things like if some of these people uh, who are in, in the frame turn up near a school or try to contact their victims and things, that becomes a criminal offence. Now, um, you can probably justify those uh, in the cool light of day, but none of this is happening in the cool light of day. And each time the government has responded um, to... It looked like they've been trying to appease the opposition who's taking this very, very hard line on this and basically saying all of these people should be back in the slammer. And, of course, the High Court said they can't be in the slammer now. The latest round of leg legislation today, the, gov the uh, opposition actually voted against it, even though they're measures that you would expect Peter Dutton to support, saying that it's all a bit of a patch-up and they're essentially saying they've got to find a way of putting these people beh back behind bars. So the High Court will release its reasons for the decision on indefinite detention tomorrow. Now, mm. the Greens and Labor have done a deal on the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. Is this a big win for our Environment Minister? Look, I think it's a big win uh, for the Environment Minister and you'd sort of hope a big win for the environment, uh, Philip. Um, essentially... Uh, for some months now, we've known that uh, the Murray-Darling, uh, the current plan is about to run out. It hasn't uh, delivered the water that it was supposed to. Labor argues that the previous government had a whole range of slightly dodgy uh, water retrieval um, projects which didn't actually retrieve any water. And certainly the um, water that was supposed to be gained for the environment hadn't been gained. Uh, it was all looking pretty um, pretty bad, um, but uh, Tanya Plibersek has managed to get the agreement of the Greens um, to uh, back a new plan, uh, which extends the life of the plan, uh, but also um, looks to get that 450 gigalitres, uh, sorry, up to 750 gigalitres of water uh, bought back um, by 2027 from willing sellers. 
um, for the environment. Now, that's something that hasn't been achieved until now. It's interesting that the deal includes $100 million allocated to help First Nations people to participate in the water market. Uh, that's right, uh, Philip, uh, and uh, in, in, a lot of Indigenous people along the river have sort of said that their rights and access to water have n- never been recognised in the scheme. So that's sort of a, an, a, another interesting new concession in this deal. Uh, and, I mean, it's still they've still got to get a couple of uh, crossbench senators to support it, uh, <coughs> excuse me, before it gets p- through Parliament, and the farmers are still not happy uh, Victoria's not happy and the Coalition isn't happy because they're saying that they're not taking into account community interests and the fact that communities along the river have to be looked after in any of these deals. I was listening to uh, RN Breakfast this morning and those community groups along the river are apoplectic. Now, finally, Laura, in the Senate this very afternoon, Labor managed to get its gas code of conduct through despite pushback from... Yes, the Greens. Yes, uh, this was uh, this was a bit of an, uh, an interesting one too, Philip. Um, this is once again this was a deal that uh, was announced some months ago. So we get this sort of rush of either legislation or, in this case, regulation through. Uh, this is basically a deal done with a couple of the big uh, gas exporters to guarantee access to uh, gas for the domestic market because there are some really huge shortages coming up. It all looked pretty good and then the Greens uh, announced uh, late yesterday that they wouldn't be supporting this measure. Uh, there was some suggestion that the Coalition would also uh, block it um, and as it turned out, the Coalition didn't block it so there was a lot of noise. Uh, the government sort of was being uh, cross with the Greens about this even though they were being nice about the Murray-Darling and uh, the measure has gone through and the gas supply is confirmed. We've been looking at a very beautiful portrait of Laura Tingle, Chief Political Correspondent 730, and speaking of beautiful portraits, let's go and examine some very, very closely at the State Library of New South Wales. My daily commutes to uh, the ABC, I genuflect as I pass the State Library of New South Wales. What a venerable institution. Many, many thousands of riches, mostly, of course, in the form of words, documents, books, letters, newspapers, journals. What is perhaps underappreciated is that it is also the holding place of a remarkable collection of paintings. Remarkable because they have not been selected for their aesthetic quality, although there are some beauties, but because of the stories they tell. It's a magnificent hardcover book. I'm in the practice, as you know, beloved listeners, of holding books up to the microphone so you can see them. But in this case, I am reliably informed the book weighs more than two and a half kilos, so I... I'd need a forklift, but it's a wonderful book and it's just been published telling the stories of those paintings and, of course, displaying them. It's called Reading the Rooms, behind the paintings of the State Library of New South Wales and the editors are sitting in the studio with me. Richard Neville, who is the uh, Mitchell Librarian and also the State Library Director of Engagement, and Rachel Franks, the Coordinator of Scholarship at the Library. Now, Rachel made a memorable impact the last time she was on the program with her um, blood-chilling story of Nosy Bob, a colonial Sydney hangman. And uh, I recall at the time that this is a late-night program and many of our listeners had nightmares. Richard, you've been involved with this art collection for yonks, so you know it backwards. There are various forms of art in the library, but this book is about the oil paintings. Yeah. Why? 
The library has one of the largest collections of images in the country. We have about 160-odd thousand watercolours, drawings, um, all sorts of... and about two million photographs. So they're vast pictorial collections, which people, as you said in your introduction, simply don't know we have. But one of the kind of... and certainly one of the formats that is most venerated, I suppose, and most um, appreciated are, are the oil paintings. And we made a selection of about 300 and we've got about 310 up on the walls at the moment. Now, because they can handle the light, they, they can be can, on permanent. They, they can be on permanent display. Yeah. And it seemed to us a great way to introduce these paintings. I mean, people might know the paintings through various history books and so on, which, you know, obviously when people are writing histories of Australia, they come to the library to source their images. But to actually see them in the flesh, to see them on the wall, to get the sense of their size and their perspective, you know, the sort of the quality of them and to be able to tell stories about them because many of them don't grab you for their aesthetic value, but what is really interesting about them are the stories behind them. So it's this kind of combination of storytelling and, and, and just making things available. Now, Richard, you are a colonial art specialist yep. and the, the paintings are overwhelmingly colonial. Yeah, well, uh, early, overwhelmingly colonial and also early 20th century. I mean, by the 1960s, people began to think, well, photography was a dominant medium and we didn't need oil paintings anymore. So um, if you wanted truth, you went to a photograph, which is obviously a <laughs> highly contestable highly contestable assertion, but nonetheless, that's the way it was. So we sort of stopped buying paintings from the 60s and we've really picked it up again now because we would argue that the way an artist interprets a view or a person or a particular subject is just as valid in terms of documentation. As I riffle through the pages, I see that the paintings are, well, class-based, Eurocentric views of what was happening. Yeah, so the early, I mean, really 1869 coming up into 1888, which was, of course, the centenary of the founding of the European colony, at that time, Sydney siders began to get interested in their history and documenting European history. And from a European perspective, the history of the colony was very much about its governors and its bishops and its leading business folk and so on. So those were the kind of things that became the first subjects of the first paintings that were acquired by the library. Sitting in the studio with me are amazingly lifelike portraits of uh, Richard Neville and Rachel Franks. Now to you, Rachel. One thing you uh, you say is that we should do is read paintings. Don't take them at face value. No, and I think that that's something that we sometimes forget when we're in a library. We've been so trained to test the written word and to find out who wrote this thing and why and is it fact, is it opinion, all of those things. And I think we do that quite instinctively over recent years, you know, the era of fake news. We sort of, we read something and we want to be sure. You, you and Richard are making all these contemporary references. <laughs> but so the, the question we have to ask is what lies behind the painting, the motives, what is being represented and why? And absolutely, and I think that the contemporary references actually work kind of well because even though a lot of the pictures that are on display are from, you know, a couple hundred years ago, the messaging, you know, the ideas of how we want to portray ourselves, how we want people to think about us and where we live, I think some of those motivations are actually not that out of date. So we have these really quite extraordinary images of people and of Sydney as it changed and morphed, but we have to sort of always ask, why does that look a particular way? Tell us about the fluidity of class. Yeah, and I think that that's really important. So we have paintings from people who were ex-convicts or who had married convicts and suddenly we have this shift and if you wanted to change how people perceived you, a bit like today, you might go off to a photographer, you might do it a little bit more economically and a little bit more quickly, but you would want your image to be captured. And so you would want to be on canvas and be framed and hang in a nice living room and have friends over. Well, that, that leads status. me to ask you about uh, Sarah 
Cobcraft, uh, a rather toothless-looking woman. Oh, poor old Sarah. Um, this is actually quite an interesting painting, and I know that it's one of Richard's favourites. So, if your listeners can imagine a rather severe-looking woman with a bit of a white bonnet and some pink ribbon, and she's sitting. Her hands are kind of laying awkwardly in her lap, and yeah, all right, she. She doesn't have any teeth, but she's in her mid-80s. But um, she came from aren't quite... We, aren't we all? <laughs> she came from quite humble beginnings. And she did. She married a convict, but they were given land, as so many of the early settlers were, and they made money out of it. And Australia held tightly in many respects to to class lines. Like working classes often wanted to be middle class and the upper classes didn't really want to dabble too much with the lower classes. So it was still there and visible and it was very real for certain families. But it was a bit more fluid than it was in England. So the opportunity to reinvent yourself was much easier in New South Wales than it was in Europe. And a symbol of that reinvention was the portrait. But for poor old Sarah Cobcroft, because she was a working class woman, she went to a working class artist. So somebody who actually was middle class or higher would have gone to one of the more sophisticated colonial artists of the day. This bloke was an ex-convict. Yeah, well, you know. I'm not criticising him. (laughs) Um, He was sort of that stereotypical forger artist turned convict turned, you know, successful bloke in the colony. And he did quite a lot of portraits of people. So we're talking about Joseph Bacla. And it's kind of quirky. I love this story about how you can lie and forge checks and do all that sort of stuff. But when it comes to your art and you're painting pictures of people, you can indeed be brutally honest when perhaps it would be nicer to lie just a little bit. Yes, he reminds me a bit of Goya in that regard. He paints people as they bloody well are. Well, if I was Sarah Cobcroft, I think I would have asked for a little bit of, you know, Photoshop as we go, but um, it sits there and it actually is a spectacular painting, like to stand in front of it and to see it. As Richard was talking about earlier, you get the size of these images and they're all more impressive, framed and quite three-dimensional, like some of these images really lift out from the wall. We should be playing pictures as an exhibition now (laughs) in the background as we talk, which takes me to the Solomon Wiseman portrait. Now, I know about Wiseman because I cross his ferry on a constant basis. But tell me about Solomon Wiseman. Well, this is kind of interesting too. So we actually don't know who painted this portrait. And it's one of the really nice mysteries that we have on the walls at the library. And, you know, the idea that there's still so much to learn about our past and these little puzzles to try and solve. But his portrait is much more traditional for the age. So we've sort of come out of that obsession with natural history. We've stopped painting lots of dead birds and dead animals and all those sorts of things. And we're getting really good at painting people as, you know, a sign of privilege that someone, you know, in this case, a bit of a thief, um, had sort of turned his life around and, you know, done good. And he was quite a respectable man. And one of the things that you notice in this portrait, while Sarah just sort of sits on her own and when you look at her, you just see the woman. But with Solomon Wiseman, he's trying to sort of construct a much more sophisticated image of himself and he's holding a book and a telescope. So symbols... (laughs) A very nicely polished telescope. It's a very nicely polished telescope. He's holding it kind of wonkily. It's sort of cradled in his arm as though it might be a a small child that he's quite proud of. But I think that gives us a sense of 
what these portraits actually meant. Yes, intellectually, they were, look, I've done this great thing, I've now got my own money and my own home and I can put stuff on the walls and it's all very grand. But there was quite an emotional attachment to these images as well, this idea that, you know, I've made it. Anyone listening who is uh, in close proximity to the Hawkesbury River will... I think needs to know that Solomon Wiseman had been a boatman on the River Thames and was given the death sentence in, what, 1805 for nicking a load of wood. A significant quantity of timber, I think it was. It was a ridiculous amount of wood. I don't know how he carried it. (laughs) And writer Kate Grenville enters our story. Yeah, and I think this is kind of what Richard was alluding to earlier in the number of stories that kind of fall naturally from these paintings. So they are not so far removed from our past. I mean, you sort of walk into the galleries and sometimes you think, oh, that's all terribly colonial and that was all a terribly long time ago. But really... It's not that long ago. And for some people, it is their family history. So, of course, Kate Grenville writes The Secret River, which is loosely based on this story of the the Hawkesbury and the people that lived there and their conflict with First Nations peoples and what country meant to the traditional owners of the land, but also what it came to mean to some of the the settlers, some of the colonists who came out here and took country. Back to you, Richard Neville. The uh, the painting of Wiseman had no name on it of either subject yeah. or artist, but uh, I understand the library was able to do the research. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, these are... Often our paintings come unattributed, as Rachel was saying. I mean, if you were a successful artist, you tended not to come to New South Wales. You tended to come at His Majesty's leisure. But um, so a lot of the artists we have really, we don't know who the artists actually were. There's a bit of a clue, Wiseman's telescope is a bit of a clue to his identity because he was, it was often said that he would sit at the bottom of, on, on the Hawkesbury with the telescope looking at coaches and so on coming down the hills into the Hawkesbury. So this telescope was very much a symbol of him. But it came to us through a descendant, but then we came across a photograph of another um, portrait by him. And Wiseman, these people, if you were successful, you often commissioned a number of portraits. So this is an oil portrait, but there's also a watercolour portrait, which we have a photograph of. And it was pretty unclear, but we re-digitised it and you could see the same man holding the telescope as well, so clearly the same guy, and just to make sure you knew who it was, and he's standing in a room with some lovely cedar furniture, architraves and so on, and a desk, and on the desk is a letter addressed to Solomon Wiseman. So it clearly made the link. And then just the other day, in fact, we acquired a, a beautiful little miniature portrait of his wife, Sophia, which had just peered out of the blue. But a lot of the work of this project is actually trying to work out the identity and the provenance and through provenance, the sort of history of a work, you can get a pretty fair idea of what a painting, the subject of a painting. What a wonderful place for research, the uh, State Library is, Richard. Absolutely. Tell me about uh, Henry Robinson Smith. Yeah, so, I mean, he was someone we have, to a certain extent, resurrected as an artist. Uh, One of these many artists who, I mean, uh, in the mid-19th century, a lot of Australian art was pretty similar to what you've got in any large provincial town in England. And this sense we have of this kind of unique Australian character, I think in particularly in the 19th century, what most people living in Sydney or New South Wales wanted to do was to think they're actually living in England, but they just happened to be... In, so all the cultural forms and the kinds of forms of portraiture and so on were just interchangeable with what you see in England. So Robinson Smith... Not really sure what his training was, but he certainly had some training. And he comes out to New South Wales in the early 1840s and sets himself up as a portrait painter. And for reasons really unknown to anyone, he kind of is quite prolific, but he just disappears from view. And he he got some major portraits, so he painted uh, the governor, Governor Charles Fitzroy, 
which, I mean, a lot of these artists were quite opportunistic. So if you're going to make a living, you had to really kind of work your market. So Fitzroy was leaving in 1854. So um, Robinson thought, great, I'll paint a portrait of him and I'll sell it as a kind of um, presentation portrait to Fitzroy. Unfortunately, no one buys it. And, um, but it's later raffled. But, he, but <laughs> this guy, uh, Joseph Raphael, does get it and he has it. When As soon as he dies, two weeks later, his wife is writing to the library saying, look, I've got this, I've got this portrait of Fitzroy and do you want it? So clearly it had been sitting in her house for, for 30 odd years and she's thinking, geez, I really wish I could get rid of that painting. And as soon as her husband went, she offered it to the library and it's this very lurid purple sort of flamboyant portrait, which possibly matched Fitzroy's own character, who was a bit of a lad. But poor old Robinson. I mean, he has a bit of a flourish by the mid-1850s. His career seems to be over as a painter and he becomes an inspector of meats in Newtown and dies, dies a bureaucrat rather than a painter. So, But he's kind of... He's a typical story of the way... The visual arts. I mean, when people think about visual arts in the 19th century, and probably not many people do think about it, but if they do, they would think of Coran Martins or John Glover or Eusebius yes, Bogarat. Yeah. But there's, in fact, a whole raft of people sitting underneath them who are churning out images for, like Joseph Backler, um, like all these people, making this stuff which art galleries don't collect because it's not beautiful. So our library or, you know, yeah, so our library becomes a place where this kind of imagery goes, and I think in many ways that's the kind of stuff that people are looking at, not the kind of mark. That's why I genuflect when I pass the State Library because uh, you you bring back to life so many people. Yeah, and that is the great joy, I think, both Rachel and I have, I mean, getting this thing together. It's a huge amount of work, but it's also endlessly fascinating and, you know, you could do... We could go on produce... I mean, we won't... <laughs> But you could go on producing books. I mean, it is a really fascinating place to work. On LNL, I'm talking to Richard Neville and Rachel Franks, both from the uh, State Library of New South Wales, about the big book of the library's oil paintings, which, uh, as I said, clocks the scales at about two and a half kilos. Now, Rachel, there is a, a series of paintings of the rocks that historic area of Sydney tucked between the Harbour Bridge and the CBD, they were done in the early 1900s. Why? So this is one of those really interesting examples of government reimagining a space and a community and saying yes to redevelopment and actually being conscious of what is being lost to give way to new infrastructure. So it's, you know, just after 1900, there was a lot of pressure on the rocks, housing was tight, the wharves were overrun, um, there were more pubs than you could possibly drink at in a night or even a weekend. So it's a really cramped and crowded place. And of course, with all the deliveries coming in by water, you had goods, you had food, you had all these sorts of essential things, but you also had rats. And on the rats came fleas and with the fleas came the plague. So very early in 1900, in the January, the first person falls victim to the plague. They survive and indeed only about five people from the entire rocks area out of all the victims of the plague across Sydney. So it's kind of interesting that not that many people in the rocks were sick, but the rocks was highlighted as a place that was unsanitary. So there was this plan to claim much of the area and much of it was demolished in what they called cleansing operations, which is as horrible as it sounds. It really did destroy the fabric of a community. But there was this sense that we were actually losing something. Enter Julian Ashton, a yes. famous name. So His role in this? So he's a local artist and an art teacher, very famous for the Julian Ashton Art School. And it's suggested to him by the Minister of Works of the time, Edward O'Sullivan, why don't you gather up a few pals and duck down to the rocks 
and paint it so that we can remember what it looked like. And he actually embraces this with a lot of enthusiasm. So Sidney Long goes down, um, he's down, Howard Ashton is down, Alice Muscat, and they paint these really beautiful scenes of the rocks. And in some sense, it goes back to that truth of a picture um, that we were talking about earlier. These are slightly more sentimental, perhaps. They're probably more what they wanted to remember the rocks as. They remind me of Canaletto's paintings of Venice, you know, in, the, in their detail and the, yeah, and and the way tiny they little evoke figures. time. Yeah, and they're quite muted, like they are very soft to look at and you have this sort of endless blue sky across most of the the seven of these paintings that we have and we have them in a beautiful cluster together on the walls so you can almost do a little bit of a old rocks walking tour but they're really important because you know it took painting for uh, you know to capture an historical moment from that idea of the person you know Solomon Wiseman with his telescope and all that sort of stuff and it actually made it painting history for everybody you know this was sort of something for all the people of Sydney that they could remember their own history by Richard please don't uh be insulted by the next question and stomp out of the studio, but uh, would it be rude or fair to say that to some extent the State Library received the rejects from the Art Gallery of New South Wales? Yes. Well, this this has always been a, a, a point of contention, I suppose. I mean, a lot of the paintings that Rachel's just been talking about were initially given to the Art Gallery and um, the Art Gallery acquired them. But then... I understand the rock series, the rock case series, in yeah, point. Yeah, the rock series, and they ended up in the art gallery. So by about 1920, the art gallery's collecting policy, someone must have looked at it and they thought, well, they've looked at these paintings and they don't really seem artistic. You know, they're documentary, they're not works of art. So therefore, the best thing to do would be for them to come across to the Mitchell Library, which is known in that stage as the depository of documentary images. So it's slightly controversial because... At the time this transfer was made, the principal librarian, who would now be called the State Librarian, was acting director of the Art Gallery and he seemed to have authorised this transfer. So the Art Gallery is somewhat concerned that, you know, maybe probity wasn't strictly adhered to. But it was a very conscious decision by the Art Gallery which affected other paintings as well where they kind of look at these things and they say, well, this is actually more about information than aesthetics, so therefore it really belongs to the library. Richard, uh, there are some depictions of First Nations people, but hardly anything by them. Yeah, so, I mean, I think the, the issue of how First Nations people are represented, particularly in the oil painting collection and early collections, is quite problematic in, you know, obviously I think we would be much more sensitive to the questions that maybe that lack now raises. But... Obviously, there was a, you know, it was a kind of, well, it wasn't a kind of, it was an invasion of their land. It was a very unhappy story of occupation and often obliteration. And European responses to that were very mixed. I mean, often terrible. But for urban Europeans in particular, the Aboriginal people, First Nations people, began to represent something that was kind of exotic and different. And so... And passing. And passing. And so... The idea was if you wanted a representation of First Nations people on your walls, you didn't really want to see them in, you know, in the conflict that they were enduring, but you wanted to see them return to the kind of to the glory days when they lived naturally. And, and so they're, very, they're often quite celebratory images of Aboriginal people. In some paintings of place... Aboriginal people were depicted as stylized figures in the shadows, weren't they? And I think, you know, we would... Uh, yes, absolutely. But Aboriginal people these days would look at that and say, well, that shows we were still here. So it actually has a meaning that, you know, you can read it two ways. They've been pushed to the margins, but not only... Yes, that's true, 
But they have survived and they are still here. Now, an interesting exception to all of this was a Tom Roberts portrait called uh, Maria Charles from 1895. That's a beautiful portrait. I mean, Tom Roberts, you know, he's one of our he's one of our artists in our collection who's actually really bloody good, you know. He's, he's not one of our bad artists. And we also have some of his sketchbooks and a lot of his correspondence, so it's a fascinating archive. But... Um, Roberts was interested in this question of Aboriginal people and uh, he saw them as passing and so he had an idea that he would like to paint portraits of Aboriginal people as kind of types, you know, this idea that you're going to kind of collect a, a type specimen of a declining race, which is, you know, these days a pretty kind of confronting idea. But so he was heading up north to where he thought he would find Aboriginal people and he stopped in at Yugubar, which was owned by a squatter called Edward Ogilvy, and um, he painted a splendid portrait of Ogilvy. He's very upright, alert in his 80s, very military bearing. But he also came across a woman called Maria Charles, who for many years we knew as Maria Yugubar, and she, unlike, she's a beautiful painting, but she's looking down, she's a sort of... She's sad. Yeah, there's a sense of melancholia there. And we obviously want to read into that depiction what we now know. But what did come out, I mean, she's a Bunjalung woman and her family is still very much alive and well. So using research, we managed to work out actually who she really was. So we have given her a name and she now has a history. And she's much more than just a type that Roberts thought was passing, you know. Her, her had, he, had he been commissioned to do No, that? he obviously painted those grand landscapes and um, the sort of national pictures, but he also had lots of sort of side projects and this seems to have been a side project that never really resolved. He never managed to complete it. And he was always frustrated by having to paint portraits. He thought of Europeans. He thought that was sort of money for jam but not where his skills and talents really lay. So, Richard... Any art by First Nations people. So, yes, yeah, so that is obviously um, we do have drawings by people, sort of pen and ink drawings and watercolour drawings by um, Tommy McRae and Mickey of Aladulla and so on, but as oil paintings, no, we, and we don't. And so, I mean, the oil paintings represent a very particular substrata of our collections. So you do find broader representations of people in the watercolours and the drawings and so on. But clearly now too, our challenge is to actually turn that over and begin to make sure we collect. But you're working hard on that, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, that's By right. getting yeah. photography, oral history and more. Yeah, and we need to hear the, the voices of Aboriginal. We're very good on Europeans saying what Aboriginal people thought, what we now are working very hard to and we have a, actively engaged with ensuring that we have the voices of Aboriginal people, their own voices, recorded by the library. Rachel, a long way from the First Nations world is a striking portrait of a fair-skinned man with very bright blue eyes, sandy-coloured hair and a (laughs) moustache. So that's Percy Reginald Stevenson, who's quite an odd character on the walls at the library. And the painting is quite pale and I think sometimes you have to look at it twice to remind yourself that it actually is an oil painting. But part of that is that it's it's very thin. And so what had happened was Stevenson had been this great literary figure and, you know, in the 1930s he founds the Endeavour Press with Norman Lindsay. He's publishing Miles Franklin and Eleanor Dark and he's doing all this really great stuff. And then he wakes up and he is slightly right of centre. Slightly right. <laughs> Come off it. <laughs> and anyway, it sort of becomes more extreme as the days go on. So in 1942... He becomes interred. He's arrested by military intelligence at 4am in March the 10th in 1942 as part of the the war effort to sort of sequester these people who are, are voicing views that you know are on the other side. And so while he's um, incarcerated, and it's quite it's so strange because normally oil paintings are sort of saying, 
success and I have money and I'm going to have people over for dinner, all of those things. And he's in an internment camp and he's painted by another internee, Robert Grothby. And the reason is it is so thin is because the person in charge of the camp was terribly worried about what he referred to as unauthorised communication. So it was all fine to have this portrait painted as a gift for Stevenson's wife, Winifred, who was sort of fretting for him on the outside, but it wasn't to be used as a vehicle to send out any messages sort of between paint and canvas. So it had to be super (laughs) thin so it could be clearly inspected before it left. You make the point that Miles Franklin kept him as a friend. Yeah, she was... um, I like Miles Franklin a lot, but she's kind of... Eccentric, But one of the things I really do admire her for is that she was fiercely loyal. And once she named you a friend, she stuck by you, even if she would receive personal criticism for that. And, you know, Stevenson had been good to her. He published her only crime novel, Bring the Monkey, in 1933. And I think she was grateful for that. And she was grateful for what he was doing for Australian literature more broadly. I'm not criticising but Miles, yeah, but it's uh, kind it was of just an intriguing, an almost a paradox. Now, yeah, it's Richard, weird. as well as uh, some Aboriginal subjects, there are a few other non-Europeans in the collection. Tell us about a famous Chinese businessman. Yeah, well, Mi um, Kuang Tart, who many of your listeners may have heard of, and he's perhaps the most famous 19th century uh, Australian Chinese man. He came out to the um, Braidwood goldfields in he, as a nine-year-old, he was born in 1850 and he came out to Australia, lived with on the Gulf with his uncle, but he ended up living with a European family who taught him English and allegedly he spoke English with a sort of Scottish accent. And he um, decided to settle really in Australia and opened a tea house and then opened a chain of, of refreshment rooms really and did very well and certainly far exceeded whatever he could have achieved probably in China, given his status. But we have a very sort of quite a photographic portrait of him uh, hanging on the walls that did come to us via the family. So, again, these portraits have a, a provenance to the family. So you can be pretty sure that it is Kong Tart. And there was a, a, a way of getting portraits in those days. I mean, this whole idea about how the acquiring an oil portrait was a statement of success was, was really important. But if you wanted to get a quick oil portrait painted, the way to do it was to actually have a photo taken and then you could send these portraits off as a photograph to Canton and then artists in Canton would whip you up in oil and it would come back. That that practice was still going 20 years ago. Yeah, it, it's, I mean, and even, I mean, people like um, Shen Wei, the famous Australian Chinese portrait painter, came to Australia, when he first came to Australia, he worked down by the quay drawing European portraits, you know, for 20 bucks or something. So the the tradition of Chinese portraiture in Australia is actually quite strong. But he's clearly, I mean, he presents himself as a European gentleman. You know, he's got the flower in his buttonhole, he's got the very neat sort of suit on, very plain background. It is a very typical Chinese uh, export portrait. And... um, you know, in a way, it, it, it's this story of how you actually use images to present yourself in way to reinvent yourself. Let's now look at portraits of non-humans and I'd like you to tell me about John Lewin's painting of two kangaroos. Yeah, so Lewin was... John Lewin was an interesting character. He, was, he came out to Australia in 1800 as a natural history artist and... You know, he famously, he was in Portsmouth Harbour with his wife on the ship waiting to come out and for some absolutely crazy reason, he got off the boat. The wind blew up and the captain said, well, we've got to go. And so his poor wife was left on the ship. He was left behind. And, of course, he didn't... <laughs> I'm sorry. He didn't have travel insurance in those days and you couldn't just get the next flight. So he had to wait for the next boat. So he didn't see his wife for about a year and a half and all these terrible things happened. And then he comes out to Australia with the intention of publishing books of natural history, so birds and moths. 
and he changes his style and he decides to create these large, large format paintings of really exotic Australian specimens and he feels there's a market for those. So he can sell works that are designed to hang on the wall rather than be in portfolios of books. So John Oxley heads out into the interior of New South Wales in 1817 and comes across the red kangaroo, which is kind of the first time people had seen red kangaroos. Obviously, you know, the only way you can draw an animal is you've got to stop an animal to draw it. So the best way to do that is obviously to kill it. So these kangaroos are shot, so it's a male and a female kangaroo, and the skins are brought back to Sydney where Lewin is engaged to turn them into an oil painting. And so... They look a bit odd, you know, they don't quite sit correctly and that's because Lewin has actually taken never, the skin. He's never seen a live kangaroo. Well, he's probably, he hasn't never seen a red and, and so he's arranged them somehow in the studio and that's what he's painted. Rachel, I'm going to coin a phrase. You've never heard this before but every, <laughs> every picture tells a story. <laughs> I think that's one of the most delightful things about the paintings at the library, that there are so many stories. You know, as Richard was talking about earlier, we have the picture on the wall but often downstairs we might have their papers or their, man, you know, their book collections or objects relating to a person. So it's a great way to find out how we lived and what we wanted to be as Sydney and, you know, broader New South Wales. And I think some of those ambitions for ourselves and our communities, they're not always so different to some of the ambitions that we have now. So they may look like they were done a long time ago and look quite old-fashioned or frumpy, but there's actually a lot of relevance there. We're going to finish up by paying brief tribute to a lord. If you please, Richard Neville. Yes, so this book came about and, as you say, it's 2.4 kilos, 300-odd pages, so it's quite a, quite a, an extensive and impressive enterprise, which costs a lot of money. And we were very fortunate before COVID, in fact, to meet Lord Glendonbrook, who is a, a English life peer, but whose father is Australian, and he spent. He's a Tory life peer too, isn't he? Well, he's a Tory life peer. <laughs> yeah, he's a Tory life peer. Okay, he's a Tory. I mean, he's a fascinating man because he was one of the first, and he's very open about this. He was one of the first gay English businessmen to come out in the seventies, and he was, he's been very open about his sexuality and um, was in many ways very important to the queer community. But he is passionate about supporting projects which help explain art to people. And so he he gave the library a significant contribution to ensure that this book could actually take place. And really, without Lord Glendon Brooks' contribution, we wouldn't be sitting here today. So. Three cheers for Lord Glendon Brook and three cheers to my guests. Sitting here with me, Richard Neville and Rachel Franks, both from the State Library of New South Wales and co-editors of Reading the Rooms, behind the paintings of the State Library of New South Wales, published with that royal or almost royal help by New South. Thank Thanks you. for coming in. Thank you for having us. On our next beloved listener, our last dance with Dunt for the year, we'll take a look at what uh, COP28 might deliver and uh, typical of LNL, the cultural history of eyeliner. <laughs> Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.